Hello and welcome to episode three of All Three Points, a podcast looking at the World Cup 2022, featuring the points of the player, Stuart Lovell, the match official, James B, and the broadcaster, that's myself, Paul Mitchell. Gentlemen, good to be with you on episode three, being recorded just before the start of the World Cup on Sunday in Qatar. And I think the first thing we'd like to cover is talk about the players who haven't made it to their squads. And I think they fall into a couple of lists, those that are injured, sadly, and won't be gracing Qatar with their presence, and the ones that may have missed. So just to touch on a couple to start, Paul Pogba is missing. Is that a big loss? In Golan Kanti from France as well. Timo Werner from Germany picked up an ankle injury against Shakhtar Donetsk. He is out, but no Marco Rouse either. Sadio Mane hasn't made it either, and Villarreal's Giovanni Lucelsco of Argentina, described by boss Lino Scaloni as irreplaceable. Stuart, as a former player, when you hear somebody being called irreplaceable, it doesn't seem much for the players that are then in the squad. You're absolutely right. I mean, it does cast that that um, judgment over what they've got left. Um, and bearing in mind, Argentina are now the second favourites to win the tournament. Um I found that comment a little bit of a head scratcher myself. I must admit, um, you know, it may, maybe it's because we remember the Giovanni Lo Celso from from Tottenham, who didn't exactly set the header on fire. Although I think he has played incredibly well since he's moved back to La Liga. Um, but um, no, I mean th- th- that would be a, a real difficult one. I, I was I was actually you know watching um, a Hibs game recently where Martin Boyle went down injured. And, and and I think everyone's first thought in the stadium was, oh, um, this guy's actually in the World Cup with Australia in a few weeks' time, and and will he be okay? I don't think he's kicked a ball for him since, but um, I believe he's recovered okay and has made the squad. But it would be devastating because obviously you know some high-profile names from England have missed out with with you know both from Chelsea, the likes of Chilwell and and um, Reese James, um, and that would be a real tough one. Um, the, 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 listen, you know what? From a footballer's perspective, you accept what comes your way in terms of injuries because it's just, I'm afraid, occupational hazard. The omissions that really caught my eye were the were, were, were the the players that have not been selected for different reasons. Um, and and again, touching on England first because that they're kind of closest to home. I think um, Fikayo Tomori from AC Milan. Um, you know, who won the Serie A with with uh, Milan last season was, I would say, was probably the player that could consider himself the most unlucky, given that I don't think England are blessed with a whole host of top quality centre-halves. I expected him to be in there. He's missed out. Uh, and of course, the big story in recent days has been Ivan Tony. We thought at the time that he'd missed out on, on um, that Gareth Southgate's judgment of strikers. And I'm going to suggest that maybe the um, the big betting story that has hit the papers in the last few days, which of course the FA knew about weeks or months ago, and and of course Gareth Southgate, they would have tipped him the wink. So um, we'll never know if Tony could have or would have made the squad um, on football, um, you know, football grounds, because of course you know th- there's no way they're going to take a guy um, with a with a you know a pending hearing hanging over him for 232. Bets placed on football, albeit historical, I believe it was years ago. Stuart, I was interested in the story in the fact that that's the kind of story that and that somebody would normally have leaked in advance of the squad coming out to take all the pressure off the manager. Does that suggest that that didn't happen, that it was a close call? Well, yeah, I, I 
everyone has their own opinion about Gareth Southgate. I happen to think he's a thoroughly decent man, whatever you want to say about his managerial skills. But I think he's just a very good person and, and someone that would want to say this guy shouldn't miss out because of this. I imagine there were some serious discussions behind the scenes at the FA about whether or not, you know, should we or could we admit him on, on grounds other than football? Um, I guess they'll turn around and say that had nothing to do with it because they kind of have to. But we'll never know. That's the reality. We'll never know the truth. Um, I always I always wonder why people spend so much time about uh, talking about players who don't make the squad because let's be honest if you're if you're close to making the squad or not making the squad you're not a certain starter um you, you know you you you're, you're going to be on the bench and it doesn't mean you can't have an influence on the tournament but I was looking at some of the names um who've missed out I mean Mats Hummels who has played for Germany in the last five major tournaments and we all know how competitive the Germans are um you know he's not going with Germany uh, Roberto Firmino, one of my favourite players at Liverpool, hasn't made the Brazil squad because they've got an absolute, um, you know, the, the, they've got a bunch of gems in their squad uh, in the forward line. Dibaka Rigi, um, AC Milan now ex-Liverpool, didn't make the Belgian squad. Ferlan Mendy, that was quite a surprising one, a fullback for Real Madrid and didn't make the French squad. And he'd been playing, um, in you know, with the French team even up until recently. A um, couple of big names who I guess weren't a massive surprise to miss out. Thiago, uh, Liverpool midfielder, and Sergio Ramos, the destroyer. Um, they didn't make the final cup for Spain. Um, a player closer to home, Sven Botman um, from Newcastle, who are tearing it up in the, in the Premier League. He didn't make the cup for the Netherlands. And one which I thought was really interesting, he hasn't kicked a ball for Cameroon for, for seven years, so it's no surprise, but Joel Matip, who's one of my favourite players being a Liverpool fan, um, he hasn't played since 2005, uh, 15, sorry, citing bad experience with the previous coaching staff. And it must have been really bad because he's never played for Cameroon since. Oh, that, that is, that's, it's a lot of time not to be in international football. So as you say, probably not a great surprise. Somebody like Paul Pogba, you know, James, I mean, he's injured, but would he have brought much to the tournament? He seems to just be one of these players that actually... I'm not sure France won't be better off without him. Mm -hmm. He is one of these players that, that, that you expect so much from, and you only have to look at his time at Man United as well, and then doesn't often deliver. So I'm, I'm with you. I don't think France will miss him that much, especially when they've still got Benzema and Bappi running about as well. So, no, I'm I'm with you on on the, the Pogba thing. It's funny when when Stuart mentioned Cameroon there and one of the players who hadn't played for a little while being in the squad, I thought for one minute there he was going to say that Roger Miller was back. <laughs> don't rule it uh, out. I believe he was on the shortlist. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what don't know what age he would be now, but it would be great to see him and he's probably still got a goal or two in him as well. The, the, the other interesting thing, and I didn't pay too much attention to squads, I must admit, I thought they will be what they will be. I, I kept a, a half eye on them and I didn't see too many surprises. One of the things I was absolutely delighted to see, though, was Christian Eriksen's name. Of course, there was no spies. He was going to be in the squad, but just with the, the last year or two that he's had, it's a fantastic story, of course, that Christian Eriksen's in the Denmark squad for this World Cup, and I'm sure he'll have a, a great tournament as well. There's a, a couple of other players who, of course, a couple of the best players in the world just now, who we won't see at the, in the World Cup, and that's because those teams didn't qualify um, and that's Erling Haaland, who would have been just a revelation at this World Cup, and, and Mo Salah, if Egypt had made it as well. So it's interesting that, uh, when you've got a World Cup tournament with the best countries, the best players in the world, that actually 
because of not being able to qualify, we're also missing out on some great stars as well. Well, I've got some I've got some good ones here to add to those. I, I made a list myself of the players that the, the two you mentioned, James, were the first two, the the obvious ones, you know, the arguably the two best strikers in in the in the Premier League. Um you can chuck Harry Kane in there for obvious reasons. Martin Odegaard, skipper for Arsenal, having a phenomenal season, you know, with the with the tabletop as five points clear of City. Um, unfortunately, he plays for Norway, as does Haaland. And uh, they clearly haven't got very good players around them because they can't even get themselves in close to qualifying for major tournaments. Um, and, has, and it's been a while. Zlatan, you don't even need to say his second name, mainly because it's quite difficult. Mm. Tongue twister, but everyone knows who I mean. Um, I scribbled down four from Italy. Donnarumma, Chiellini, Verratti and Chiesa, who were all brilliant in the Euros. And astonishingly, Italy managed to get turned over by North Macedonia, I think it was. Oh, those, it was. Those guys won't be making it. Um, again, one of my favourite players as a Liverpool fan, Luis Diaz from Colombia, will not be there. I've got some crackers here as well. Frank Kessie from Ivory Coast, who moved in the summer from AC Milan, having just won Serie A and went to Barcelona. He won't be there. Or Bamiyang, Riyad Mahrez. Victor Ossiman, one of the top players in Europe this season, Nigeria, and of course, top goal scorer with Napoli, who are miles clear. Um, who else have we got? Eden Dzeko, Miguel Almiron, I thought was a good one, one of the best players who's kind of gone under the radar a little bit um, from Paraguay. David Alaba um, from uh, Austria. And the player that upset you guys the most at the Euros, Patrick Schick from the Czech mm. Republic and Bayer Leverkusen. Um, Maybe you know, close to being one of the best players in the tournament at Euros, he won't be there either. I've got to take issue with both of you just dismissing Paul Pogba out of hand and saying, Will they miss him? He was one of the best players in the World Cup four years ago, and it seems to me that he has reserved his best football for France, maybe not so much for Man United, obviously. Um, and he's barely kicked a ball, has he even kicked a ball for Juventus? I'm not sure. But um, I thought that I thought you were both being incredibly harsh on on Pogba, um, who was not far off the player of the tournament in Russia. Yeah, which probably tells you a bit that we expect so much from somebody like that, mm -hmm. and and they've they've disappointed so much, and we're disappointed in your Stuart that your list didn't contain John McGinn and Andy Robertson <laughs> as well. So <laughs> I'm a big fan of John McGinn, but we're talking about you know. Players who, yeah, I mean, it, does he does he make the list of world class compared to what I've what I've quoted? Not he's as, as world class as Scotland are going to get. I think that's, that's fair to true. say. Let's move on to the betting because obviously things, you know, when the squads come out, things start to just move a little bit. And Stuart, I think I'm right in saying that some of the South American teams are getting a bit more love while the European teams are sliding. Yeah, that's a very fair summary, Paul. Um, so when we discussed this, uh, you know, relatively recently, you know, not too long ago, I, I was giving you the odds for the outright market and Brazil were the nine to two favourites. Um, France weren't too far behind. Argentina, the third favourite. Spain, fourth favourites. And then you could throw a, um, a, a, a jacket over England, Germany, Netherlands, Portugal and Belgium. Just they were kind of the fight. And then and then there was a huge gap to to the rest, which which was kind of Denmark, Croatia, Senegal, and and whatnot. Um, there are three countries there's been really significant money for. The best backed, without question, without question, is Argentina. There has been a flood of money for Argentina in the past 10, 10 days to two weeks. 
so much so that they're actually, well, they're clear second favourites. I don't think they'll quite usurp Brazil at the top of the market, but the, easily the most money has come in for Argentina. I mean, they were 11 to 1 back in the summer. And they're now eleven to two, so they've halved in price. Brazil have been the favourites for you know for, for the last two years, and the smart money, or, or maybe stupid money, whatever you want to call it, but certainly there's been a lot of shrewd each way men on Uruguay. Uruguay were a hundred to one maybe a month ago, sixty-six to one when we discussed it um, recently, and they're into fifty to one, and even that's getting hoovered up. Um, again, we were talking about. Um, a, a dark horse and and James I think you mentioned Denmark as being one mm. of the best teams at the Euros and there's usually someone that comes out of the woodwork so if people are correct about you know um, shrewd punters who are looking for a little bit of value for teams maybe getting to the last four or even the final um, Uruguay uh, <clears throat> uh, someone that they think could could rock the boat shake things up a little bit but no question Argentina have been the best backed country by some distance What I like about the, the betting is it, it it's unscientific at the end of the day. I mean, you get it right a lot of the time, but there's always that room for that dark horse. And we do look at the likes of you know, Denmark and Uruguay. We'll touch on their opening games in a moment. So let's, let's go back and touch on opening games. And the World Cup, I mean, from its inception in, in 1930 through to 1970, the opening game was just the opening game. It, it just threw itself up. Then, from 1974 to 2002, the defending champion got the chance to open the tournament. And then from 2006, which I, and I, I'd like to see what you guys think, I think this is naff that the, the host nation opens the tournament because I think it can lead to some fairly dull affairs. So since we've had the host country era, Germany beat Costa Rica 4-2, South Africa drew with Mexico, Brazil took care of Croatia, but then you had Russia crushing Saudi Arabia to start 2018, which I thought got the tournament off to a pretty poor start. And before we talk about Qatar against Ecuador, I mean, we, we do remember the days, guys, of you know Brazil, Scotland, Scotland getting the chance back in 1998 to face the champions. Which do you prefer, Stuart, the champions starting or the host country starting? Oh, I don't know. It's a difficult question. I, I've, I've scribbled down all of the opening games going back to 1990. And... Um, there are two that stand out by a country mile. Um, I, do you know? I actually laughed out loud when I saw the the, uh, the opening game from the from the World Cup in Russia. It, it, easy to forget, Russia absolutely pummeled Saudi Arabia five nil, and and none of us thought that Russia were going to do anything in the tournament whatsoever because they weren't a, a strong footballing nation, or so we thought. And they ended up getting to the quarterfinals. Um, and you know, and it, I think it always adds something to the tournament if the host nation can stay in as long as possible. Because don't forget, we had that extraordinary tournament in 2002 when South Korea made mm -hmm. the semi-finals. So it's important, you know, that Qatar hang around as long as possible. But you know, you could argue they'll be doing well to get out of the group stages. Um, I think they, I think they have a chance. But um, the two games that stick out by country mile back in 1990, um, <laughs> Argentina. The holders um, played um, in the San Siro and and got turned over by Cameroon, who we had no clue were going to turn out to be arguably the you know the well they were definitely the dark horse of the tournament, but they could easily have beaten England um, in the quarterfinals. Um, you know, could have and should have maybe won that game, but they they beat Argentina one nil, and of course you thought, oh, well, that's Argentina done for, and they they ended up getting to the final again, um, and then. 
I think the the other one that caught my eye was was of course France, the holders losing one nil again um, uh, to Senegal, um, and, and uh, so so the holders losing to an African nation, and no one had predicted that. Generally, though, the the um, the opening fixtures tend to be a bit of a um, a damp squib, and I think I don't think there's anyone that's excited with this this opening fixture, are they? Anyone at all? No, I mean, James, I'll ask you the same question. Would you rather see the holders or the hosts? I understand why they've changed it in a way. I, I'm uh, very excited about the Qatar-Ecuador opening game, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, I think, especially with this type of World Cup, and I can remember when they changed it around the time of the South Korea, because uh, that was, of course, shared with Japan, there was a there was a fear that the, the the host nation would lose interest, the fans would lose interest if they didn't do well in that tournament. And I think um, it's, it's something about getting getting the excitement of the host nation involved, the, the the population on board. And then you saw what happened in South Korea. They they were they were in actually quite a difficult group. Uh, they had the United States, Portugal, and Poland, but they topped that group and went on, and, and they, they were they carried the, the hopes of a nation on that. Now, Qatar is a very different country, a very different uh, population, demographic, all that kind of thing. But I can see why to get the the interest going. You've got Qatar in, in the opening game. The 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 game that sticks out for me, of course, as an opening game, was the nineteen ninety eight one in France, where uh, Brazil with the champions from the World Cup before. They played a team called Scotland in that opening game. And as Stuart says, it sometimes matches opening games in the World Cup can be quite cagey affairs because it's the opening game for not just the tournament, but the opening game for those two countries. And they don't want to lose. Nobody wants to lose their first match in the group, so it can be quite cagey affairs. That was a cracking match, and, and Scotland had a good go at Brazil. That day, you'll, you'll remember it well. And at 1-1, it looked like we could maybe even pinch it and then lost a, a very unfortunate and late goal to lose it. But um, I'm happy with it, whether it's a previous champion or a, or a host nation. I'm just really looking forward to the, this, the, this opening match. What I like and what I think it should be is I think it should be the defending champion. So I think you've got the right to come out of that dressing room, World Cup in hand, plant it on the stand and say... That belongs to us. You want it, you come and get it. I think it just sets a wonderful tone. We've earned the right to be here. We've not been in qualification. This is ours. Come get it. I just think that's a much stronger thing than, than a host nation, especially when we've got arguably a very weak host nation. So let's come on to Qatar against Ecuador. Now, one of the stories that has broken in the last couple of days is an allegation of Max Match fixing, $7.4 million allegedly gone to eight Ecuadorian players uh, to throw the first game. Now, whether that's true or not, we will not know. And at time of recording, we have to say it's not been verified. Qatar against Ecuador doesn't get my blood pumping. I think the World Cup starts on Monday, to be honest. Um, mm. And that's why I would rather have seen the holders out there. It just gives it that stronger start. And, and Stuart, I'm going to be slightly controversial here just because of the way that everything's gone. If Qatar get pumped without scoring a goal in every game, I will celebrate. <laughs> and I know you might think that damages the tournament, but uh, we, we covered this in episode one. I don't think it, they should have got it. They've bought it. We all know this. Uh, interesting, Netflix have released their FIFA Uncovered documentary, uh, which talks about 
you know, corruption within FIFA. That, to me, that's a bit like releasing a documentary on the Titanic and saying, you know, it sinks. You know, we all know <laughs> that it's corrupt. So I think it's a, it's a little bit late. Can the tournament get off to a good start with Qatar or are we waiting seriously till Monday? No, we're, we're waiting. We're, uh, there's no question about that. I mean, I, you know, the, 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 the eight opening games, um, you know, going back to 1990, um, we've had three snooze fests albeit it was very exciting to see Cameroon beat Argentina 1-0 and 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 Senegal beat France 1-0, but we've had three 1-0s. But the good news is the last four World Cups, I think we've had 17 goals in over the last four opening fixtures. You know, 5-0 the last time. Brazil beat Croatia 3-1 um, in 2014. 1-1 between South Africa and Mexico in 2010. And a cracking 4-2 Germany victory over Costa Rica in 2006. So we've had, at least we've had loads of goals. Um, you know, I, I imagine expectations for Qatar against Ecuador are going to be pretty low. And chances are it'd probably be 7-4. So you know, <laughs> we can be excited by that. I, I mean, listen, I, I'm already, if I'm honest, the first really kind of exciting fixture from my perspective is not even until, um, you know, Saturday the 26th of November. So we're we're almost a full week into the tournament when France played Denmark. That is... That, to me, is the best game of all of the games until we get to the knockout stages because yeah. those games where you couldn't call it, um, you, you wouldn't be sure who's going to win France. France will obviously be favourites, but Denmark will give them a right good game. The following day, Spain play Germany. Again, an absolute cracker. The following day, Portugal play Uruguay. Another tough one to call. And finally, even though... The bookies will say it's a foregone conclusion. Wales, England is a really interesting fixture for us, you know, being in the UK. Those are the, the four games for me that I'm interested in, and they're all back to back. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong, I think England have got a chance against Wales. So, you know, we can't write <laughs> England off completely. But if we look at the first round of games and, and you had to pick one to watch, James, what is your pick of, of the first suite of games? I will answer that in a second, I promise. But going back to that um, allegation that you made or that claim that Ecuador may have been uh, bought already, uh, oh, clearly my tongue was in my cheek when I said I was looking really forward to that opening game. I do think that Ecuador will batter Qatar, and I agree with you. I won't lose any sleep over the host nation going out early in this tournament. But um, in fact, there'll be the Qataris might be wishing that they, they were allowed alcohol in the stadiums by the end of that game. But that, that claim that they've possibly bought Ecuador or, or, or tried to bribe them, etc., does not surprise me because, as we know, that since Qatar have been mentioned for this World Cup, they've been accused of buying it. A quick story about my, again, time in Qatar. I ran out for some league game. I think they call it the All-Stars League game in Qatar. I took up my position on the touchline and heard quite an atmosphere behind me. Drums going, horns going fans clapping, a real, real atmosphere. I turned around at one point when I could during a stoppage in play and saw 50 people behind me. And that was the only 50 people in the stadium. And what I was told back then in 2010 was these were people who were paid to go into the stadium and try and create an atmosphere. And I've been hearing in the last few days as well that there's, there's talk of Qatari members of the public, if you like, have been being paid to go into the stadiums and generate atmosphere and fill the gaps, etc. So it does not surprise me that we're talking about bribes in the opening game as well. 
picking the bunch in the first few days because, as you said, the tournament starts on Monday, England, Iran, Senegal, Netherlands, etc. But the game that jumps out for me in the opening days, I think it's Wednesday, Germany versus Japan. And there's a couple of reasons why I'm interested in that one. Germany, that machine that qualifies for tournaments always gets to the latter stages of the tournament and is a machine that often wins tournaments as well. I want to see how they're looking for this World Cup. They had a very poor start in the last World Cup. They they were the the holders, of course, and I keep mentioning that jinx of the holder. They went out at the group stages. They lost to Mexico. So they won't be wanting to repeat of uh, 2018. Japan surprised a lot of people in that last World Cup. And I'll never forget the game where they, they were 2-1 up against Belgium, I think, and were just minutes away from knocking out Belgium in the last World Cup and then lost two late goals to them to, to break their hearts. I think that could be a, a much better game than it actually looks like on paper. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Stuart, what's the, the pick of the bunch for you? Being an Aussie, is it is it going to be France-Australia? It is, it is, yeah. I have to say that, um, you know, I mean, France are one of my two picks, albeit there's a, a slight lack of confidence with the fact that that um, Pogba and N'Golo Kante are going to be missing the tournament. But I think they've got a huge amount of quality and I want to see what they can do against a team who I imagine are going to play with a low block and and and, and effectively, you know, just try and grind out a result of some description. Um and I, and I think, obviously, it's going to be an incredibly difficult game for the Socceroos, so we'll see how they can cope with that. I think other than Spain against Costa Rica, which is which is the biggest differential between the, the prices, I think Costa Rica are 25 to 1. Australia are the next biggest outsiders at 14 to 1. So do I give them a chance against France? Absolutely not. I'm, I'm very interested to see how they compete against one of the favourites in the tournament. Tell me a little bit more about the low block as a player, how you're prepared for that. What's what's the drill for that against, and I'm not being disrespectful, France are clearly the better team than Australia. T- tell me how you implement this block. So you've got to think about who are the biggest dangers in the in the side. And, and, and you always hope that team is slightly lopsided in the way that it attacks. The problem that you've got with France is that you're going to have, well, assuming they're fit, and Benzema is going to play as a nine and Mbappe is going to play as a as a wide man coming in off the left. And then I guess they'll maybe play, they might play Griezmann in behind or they might play possibly play Dembele out wide. And the difficulty that you've got is, is, is that you want to effectively let them have the ball out wide because you think all, the danger is always going to be, you know, don't let a team let play through the middle. So we'll play like narrow and let them have it out wide. And as soon as you let people like Mbappe have the ball out wide, if he gets one-on-one, it's a foregone conclusion what's going to happen because he can cut inside and unleash a shot or he can beat you down the line with his pace. So then you effectively have to say, we can't cope with him 1v1. So we have to go 2v1 and have two players play against him. And then if you go on the other side, you've almost got to do that. And effectively, what you do is you just give up possession. So so a low block means you're accepting your fate we know that we can't really hurt you going forward. So we're going to try and play for 90 minutes and try and keep you out. And of course, what happens is, you know, you get tired and, and the longer the game goes on, the more the concentration levels go. It's just a horrible situation when you play against a team who are way better than you are. I've been through it before. <laughs> I've had these situations playing at Celtic Park, at Ibrox, playing in, you know, cup competitions against Man United and really good sides. 
and it's it's tough because you you didn't get into football for that situation where it's damage limitation. <laughs> you want to impose yourself on the game, but there are times where you play against an opponent where they're not a little bit better, they're miles better. And this France v Australia situation it is a mismatch. James, I'm interested from a match official's point of view, when you're in charge of a match like that, where one team is dominating so much, do they start to get the benefit of the doubt more because they've got the ball more? Does the the, the team who's uh, the lesser later of the two get, get the benefit? No, the, t- the team of the ball, you know, being the more creative, you know, having the more chances, do they get the little little rub of the green from the officials? But perhaps unintentionally, because they are being more positive. Most referees will say they don't do that um, because we, we referee every game on its merits, etc. And there's no preferential treatment and rubber the greens, etc. as you say. But I think you've, we've got to remember as hard as it is to believe that referees are human. And sometimes when a team is getting turned over, say three, four, five, no, and there's only 20 minutes to go and... Uh, that sympathy thing kicks in and you start to feel a little bit, they, they might get the, the, the 51 49s now and again because you know it's immaterial, it's not going to make a, a, a difference. But no, I don't think referees kind of go overboard in terms of you know their sympathy for teams when they're getting turned over, especially when it's a, a, a more than decent team that's, that's handling if, them. Well, if I was to flip that round though, it, 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 say, say it's Francis Trui, it's 0-0, Francis about 80% of the ball. You know, as as the attacking team, would they get would they get the benefit of the doubt in decisions? No, you know, really, if it's nil nil, I really don't think so. In fact, sometimes it can keep in your mind that you want to see it become a little bit more competitive, and and give the other team maybe something else to bring them into the match more. But what what's really interesting for me about this Francis Julia match that we're talking about just now as well is that, and I know what happened four years ago does not have a bearing on, you know, what's going to happen uh, in this World Cup. Although tell that to the the people, you know, the bookies, etc., who set these odds, because clearly they take history into account. But I remember that um, 2018 World Cup match between France and Australia, and Australia were extremely unlucky. Stuart would probably tell me that it's a very different uh, Australia team back then, four years ago. But Australia were really unlucky. I think with about 20 minutes to go, it was 1-1. France had got the penalty through a bad decision, and it was only an own goal, I think, with about 10 minutes to go that that, that won the game for France. So who knows? Um, I think... Australia have done really well. I've got to get a really bad joke in here as well. I think through their qualification um, for this World Cup, they played something like 21 matches in order to qualify for that World Cup. Uh, this World Cup, Stuart can correct me if I've got that wrong, but I believe it's 21 games, and I believe that's also a record for any country in the history of the World Cup to play that amount of games to get to this tournament. So I'm glad they're here, and I don't think it'll be as Bad as maybe Stuart uh, makes out. Okay, so my pick of the games, I'm going to go, and I think it is the the final game actually of of the opening games. Uh, I'm really interested in Brazil against Serbia, which is Thursday the 24th, 7 p.m. Brazil obviously are are, are heavy favourites. I think Serbia have got the tools and the stickiness and the that sort of grindability to to put a little bit of pressure on Brazil. And I, I think this is, to me, it's one of the most intriguing games. You have to, I mean, Portugal, Ghana, 
which is in Group H, which is the game right before, is also quite interesting. But I think Serbia, Stuart, they're just one of these countries. You're never quite sure what you're going to get. But I would argue what you're going to get against Brazil is 11 very, very good professional football players. Well, yeah, that, and they're a, you know, they're a, a very strong side, you know, from a phys- physical perspective. That, yeah. You know, you remember the um, the playoff game when Scotland beat Serbia to qualify for the Euros, and I remember looking at the set pieces and thinking, this is this is a, uh, this is a you know, almost a, a, a stretch too far for Scotland trying to pick up, um, you know, multiple six foot four defenders and strikers in there. So it was it was you know, you thought the delivery was good, they were going to be hard to cope with, and that's always the advantage that you have with a team from. The Balkans, as we say, you know, the, it used to be Yugoslavia, the Croats, the Serbs, um, you know, the Macedonians, this type of thing, that they've got, you know, huge uh, height advantage. But we're always, you know, we're, we're fascinated to see. Brazil have still got that kind of blue ribbon attached to their name because they've won the World Cup more than anyone else, albeit it's been a while. And um, I'm, I was, I've, I've looked at, you know, a lot of pundits talking about this, and it's amazing how they kind of revert to type and kind of say, if in doubt, I'll go for Brazil. Um, and it's always because they look at the absolute, you know, the conveyor belt of of attacking players that they've got, but forgetting the fact you can't pick them all. You know, so it's great yeah. having loads and loads of brilliant strikers, but it's like well, you're only going to play three probably as a maximum. Um, it's 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 fascinating to me just, um, you know, how people decide who it is that they think are going to win. Um, you know, and seeing all of these pundits, I didn't see anyone mention Spain, which which you know, I mean, Spain are are fourth favourites. No one mentioned Spain. Everyone seemed to go for Brazil. Quite a few went for Argentina. Interestingly, no one went for England. Um, but there was a lot of concentration on the South Americans. And um, that was, you know, it, it, I, it was, I'm still trying to get my head around, you know, markets that people bet on. And, and the, the biggest betting market is clearly who's going to win. But the second biggest is is the golden ball. And that's that's one that I think is a very interesting topic of, of worthy of discussion. Um, yeah, I think we'll come on to that. I think j- just while you're mentioning pundits, I'm desperately trying to remember. I know the pundit's name and I'm not going to embarrass them here. But I remember Gary Lineker asking somebody, you know, so X, what do you think about, you know, it, it may have been, you know, Ivory Coast. And, and I think the answer was, well, I don't know too much about them. To which I screamed at the television, you could have looked and spent a few hours of your flight over to South Africa by doing something we call in the trade Research, um, and, and I have to say, I've I've looked at some of the World Cup lineups. I'm not overly enthused by some of the picks in terms of co-commentators, and we might talk about that a little bit further on. It's it's a bit difficult working in the business. You're not supposed to offend people, but I I just think when I hear stuff like that, it, it drives me insane because it's laziness. Um, and any commentator or pundit that goes out to one of these tournaments and is not fully prepared. Um, quite frankly, doesn't deserve to be there. You're right, you're right. Oh, sorry, just, before, just before you go, leave that point. We, we mentioned some big names that are not at the World Cup this year, and you're clearly one of them. You're far, <laughs> you're far too kind. Um, yeah, for, I'm, not, I'm not saying any more about that. Um, right, let, let's go on to this, this Golden Boot, famously won by Harry Kane in 2018. And if we want, Stuart, and I think you can run us through some of the favourites, to talk about lazy punditry, Oh, Harry Kane's going to win it again. That seems to be the narrative that's come out. Now, I should stress at this point before Stuart comes in, we are not knocking England here. 
And for people who are listening outside Scotland, what, what should be explained is, because we had this um, on, I think, Scottish television, 25% of Scots will be supporting England in the World Cup. This is a trope. We get this every year. You don't expect to support your neighbours. That's just one of these things. I couldn't care less whether England win, lose or draw. What drives Because I actually like the squad. I like Southgate. It's, by and large, the way that the media in England present their team, which drives us in Scotland just a little bit nuts because they lack that little bit of, shall we say, grace or being slightly humble. Uh, and sometimes, and we will talk about this in future programmes, that the broadcasters forget, and they're not broadcasting to England, they're broadcasting to the United Kingdom. And I happen to think that all the England games that are shown either on BBC or ITV should be done with two streams, one for England and one for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland as a neutral, because that's how we will watch the game. We'll touch on that in a later episode, because we've got just a few minutes left in this one. So I've digressed, which I promised myself I wasn't going to do. Let's get back to the, the golden boots. And will it be will it be a pair of boots for Harry Kane, Stuart? Well, so interestingly, most of the time when you're you're betting on this, this is the second most popular market after actually picking the winner. So, so the bookies, you know, unsurprisingly, are very keen to get the markets out for this. I've got 18 players written down here, the top 18, 18 in the market, and Harry Kane leads the way at 70. He's not even 10 to one; he's less than 10 to one. Um, I, I got the odds from the last uh, four World Cups. So, the winner four years ago was Harry Kane. He was a 16 to one shot, one of the market leaders. Followed by, and you'll love this, five players were tied for second. Four household names and Denis Cheryshev from Russia. <laughs> and you'll love this. this. This tickled me. There wasn't even a price next to his name because the bookies didn't price him up. They didn't even say a thousand to one because he was bigger than a thousand to one. So Lukaku was... Um, uh, tied second at 18 to 1, and Antoine Griezmann 12 to 1, Cristiano Ronaldo 14 to 1, Mbappe 33 to 1, and Denis Cheryshev. Um, th th here's a question for you. I, I wonder whether you can get this. The winner in 2014 was 150 to 1. Who was it? I, I think I know who it was. Go for 2014 it. was the World Cup in Brazil. He was a surprise. I don't think anyone had heard of him before the tournament, and he went on to sing for Real Madrid and didn't really... He was a Hammes, and that's the reason I remember him, because it looks like James Rodriguez. Uh, it was Hammes Rodriguez, and I was called Hammes B for weeks after that tournament. <laughs> am, I, am, am I right? You are, yeah. Yeah, James Rodriguez for you, Hammes for those of us who are prepared to make an effort. 150 <laughs> to 1. 150 five, to 1. Five goals? Uh, I think six it might have been five. six, actually, but you might it, be right. It was six. It was six. It was just six. looked it up. Closely followed by Thomas Muller. 33 mm. to 1. Lionel Messi, Neymar and Van Persie were tied third, and all of them were very short in the market. And interestingly, you know, Thomas Muller, is, is, he was one of these guys. He was, he was a goal machine. I think he was, I think he was also... Um, one of the contenders in 2010. Four guys won it in 2010. David Villa, Thomas Muller. Oh, Thomas Muller, of course, won it in 2010. Yeah. Wesley Schneider and Diego Forlan. And then the the um, absolute goal machine that was Miroslav 
closer uh, was a 25 to one winner in 2006. So if I was to say to you that um, I can I can throw a load of names at you in order of Harry Kane leading the market, Mbappe, Messi, Neymar, Benzema, Ronaldo. I don't think we fancy him given what's happened recently. My pick, what it's worth, is Martinez from Inter Milan and Argentina, 25 to one shot. And I've all got a sneaky fancy because um, he had such a poor Euro uh, 2020 um, was Alvaro Morata, 40 to one shot for Spain because I like them to go far in the tournament. You'll get a really good price, whoever you fancy here. So if there's anyone that you fancy at a sneaky price, I would encourage you to have a few quid on. I was going to jump in at that point and say, and I've got a question back to you, Stuart, because I've, I've written down some names as well. I've got Lukaku, who I think scored four in that last World Cup, but also scored four in the last... Euro Championships as well and was amongst the leading scorers there. You've got Ronaldo, of course, I think he was the top scorer in, in the Euros. And I'd also written Torres and Marata, Benzema, of course you can. And then there's the Harry Kane. And when I bring Harry Kane in at this point, and it's interesting some of the, the people that we've mentioned who have ended up top scorers in tournaments, Ronaldo, Muller, Kane. Penalties play a big part in this, don't they? And Harry Kane... I'd love to see the stats on how many of his goals for England uh, are penalties, but he does get a lot of penalties in, in his um, in his quota, doesn't he? Well, most of his goals in the last World Cup were penalties, um, and 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 I think some of them were VAR decisions, if I remember correctly, for holding from corners and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, you're talking about Kane, the seventeen to two favourite. I think you mentioned Cristiano Ronaldo, twenty to one. I wouldn't back him with stolen money given what's happened recently. Uh, Lukaku, 40 to 1. For someone who is a proven, you know, scorer in, in championships. Again, the interesting point, even including James Rodriguez, is that you need to be finding a player for a team that's going to get to the last four. I, I don't think I'm imagining that. Or maybe I am. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe Colombia went out in the last eight. But anyway, you need to mm -hmm. get to the latter stages of the tournament. And what you should be looking at is the group stages and think, who has got a kind group where they're going to be able to rack up a few goals, get a few cheap goals before you get to the knockout stages? Argentina have got a pretty soft group. Yeah. That's the reason I've gone for Martinez. Um, I like uh, Spain to go far, Morata. Um, and I guess that's what you've got to be looking at. Do you think someone can get a few cheap goals before you get to the nitty gritty? I'd love to know if you know the odds on Toto Scalacci becoming the top scorer in the 1990 <laughs> World Cup because I'd never heard of him. Before uh, I know the answer. He was thirty. He was a thirty-three to one shot. There you go. Yeah. Never let me down. Harry Kane, three of six penalties back in 2018, two against Panama and one against Colombia. Right. Interestingly, and, and this doesn't really work on a podcast, but uh, I do have it written down. It's Morata and Martinez are the two. That, that I would be prepared to bet, but I would actually have to open an account and bet somewhere to do that. So <laughs> I'll share some of my winnings with you, Paul. I'm that I'm that, that guy. Well, that, that's that's tremendous. I might actually even get my son to put a pound on for me because I'm I'm feeling wild. Gentlemen, time has beaten us on this. We are looking forward to the start of the World Cup. We've talked about where it's being held and the issues there, but we are now about the football and we are hoping that it is going to be all about the football. Please do like this podcast. 
leave a little note telling us what you thought of it. We'd welcome any comments. Please retweet and share with your friends. But as the World Cup approaches, we hope you enjoy it. On behalf of Stuart and Hammers as well, I'm Paul Mitchell. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>